Welcome to Wobblies and Wizards. We've got a special guest for you today. Oh, by the way, this is Logar the Barbarian. I forgot to mention myself. We got a special guest for you today, Kamala Kara. She's joining us from Far Horizons Co-op. They're a game co-op, and she's working on a game called Friendship, Effort, Victory. Kamala, do you say hello to our listeners? Hello, how's everyone doing? Uh, I guess you can't answer that. Yeah, well, yeah, tweet back how you're doing. <laughs> I'm doing good. I'm excited. We got some cool stuff to talk about tonight or this morning because this will come out at six in the morning when it comes out. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about Friendship Effort Victory, the game that you're currently working on with Far Horizons Co-op. Sure. So the 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 elevator pitch of the game is that it takes heavy inspiration from a lot of the I don't I, I think you mentioned Twitter, you weren't too familiar with them, but a lot of these Japanese comic books, uh, yeah. shonen manga that I uh, read a lot back in high school. So I, I can list some in, uh, inspira- uh, inspirations for it, you know, Naruto, Bleach, Dragon Ball, and some newer ones too, like My Hero Academia. It was mainly focused on the stylistic elements of these works, ones I felt shared enough elements that I could use them to make a cohesive game because a big thing about the engine we're using is powered by the apocalypse which is a lighter engine for re- that focuses a lot on reinforcing narrative and genre elements so a big part of that is you have to really figure out what your genre or subgenre in this case is and sort of build the game around that so it's a lighter title uh, inspired by a lot of these works that I really liked in high school and it's just about replicating those experiences at the game table. Well, that's that's cool. Let's talk system-wise. It's Powered by the Apocalypse. I have picked up one or two Powered by the Apocalypse games, and I've not read any of them yet. <laughs> so just a brief description of how the game runs and what makes it unique and how does it reinforce the genre, I'm curious. Okay, so the first... So- We'll start with that first part there. So the basic <laughs> mechanics of the game is it's a 2D6 system. Uh, usually there's a stat, but actually Friendship Effect Victory is unique in that it's stat list, which is very uncommon for the engine. They usually rolled, a, uh, you only roll when certain moves are triggered. They call them moves. Other games would probably call them actions. And these are sort of predefined by the game themselves and your playbook, which most people are probably more familiar calling it a class. And these moves are specifically chosen in advance by the game developer, though custom moves are a thing, to be the big points of the genre, elements that matter for those types of stories. So if those elements are not present, it doesn't really usually result in picking up the dice. So this is one way that it kind of keeps that element going. So usually the trick in how it reinforces the genre, since these moves are usually very highly tailored to create specific outcomes and sort of guide the story and narrative to particular points, as well as the playbooks themselves, usually through their own internal narrative. If you want to compare it to, let's say, a more traditional or other type of role-playing game that doesn't have those elements, you could really take the narrative of, like, let's say if we're talking like a traditional game, you can usually take a narrative of most classes in any direction with most of their abilities really being combat-focused or things of that. Whereas Powered by the Apocalypse games, these playbooks, you know, there's a lot of stories you can get out of them, but what type of characters you can get are a little bit more guided. The abilities you get reinforces what type of person they are. Uh, 
and it might be a little easier to demonstrate with an example. Just looking at the list of playbooks right now, one thing that's popping off my head, because this one was always one that uh, people either latched onto or hated, is one, <laughs> of the, one of these playbooks was called The Jobber. I don't know if you're familiar the with- Jobber? The Jobber? Jobber. If you're familiar with wrestling? Oh, I'm not, yeah, I've seen wrestling. I'm not the most knowledgeable on it. <laughs> I borrowed the term because actually uh, shonen manga and wrestling actually use this technique a lot where you have a character whose whole purpose usually is to seem really tough, uh, but kind of get sort of beat up. So the other person seems strong. Usually shonen manga does it uh, sometimes with previous villains, sometimes with characters. Uh, one could argue Vegeta jobs a lot to make the villain seem stronger, especially in Super, I would say, that's the latest Dragon Ball series, to make the final villain seem a little bit tougher. Because uh, you know how strong this person is, or at least how much it says it is. A good jobber does seem kind of tough. A bad jobber would probably be more someone who gets beat up all the time, <laughs> like Yamcha from the same series, actually. Uh, but you use that, and then you can use that as a basis for how strong the other person is. Because, I mean, while one series actually, sometimes I like to tabulate power levels, it's you know, they're just numbers, whereas seeing a fight helps. So the job to get to the idea though, the playbook has one of its core mechanics is actually the ability to intentionally fail a task to make other characters be inspired, which is actually a support, make you some more of a support role. Okay. And a lot of the moves sort of flow into that idea. So you could play a job and you can have really a lot of different stories and elements to it, but you're being rewarded kind of twice actually, because there's also an experience gain to it for failing at the task, jobbing to an opponent. You can, unlike most other characters, you can control the results of your battle rolls to specifically fail to make other characters more successful, literally making them look better. Okay. And that sort of defines what role you have, not only in a mechanical sense, but in a narrative sense. There are some moves that play against it. And like most PBTA games, you can take moves from another playbook as advances. So you can branch out and sort of make your niche a little bit more dynamic. Because um, for example, I brought Vegeta as a bit of a intentionally there because he's probably closer to another playbook, the rival, which is another classic the trope rival. Another classic trope where there's one guy who just wants to be better than the other guy, usually the protagonist of the story. <laughs> so it more likely would you to be a rival of some jobber moves, whereas Yamcha would probably be just a jobber. I don't know. Some of the audience might recognize these character <laughs> names. I don't know them. I'm sorry. <laughs> I That's fair. I realize I'm saying them, but that, you, you probably don't know the series. Um, nah, but I get an idea. You're talking about the archetypes, essentially, which is which is easy enough to follow along and understand there. there so yeah, You know, actually, funny enough, I believe they were called... I want to say... No, no, I thought for a second the Apocalypse Bowl called them archetypes, but I think I'm wrong. But that's the first Powered by the Apocalypse game. That's why it's called Powered by the Apocalypse. The creator, uh, the baker, has just basically said anyone can use their engine. But, but yes, that's sort of how it, um, the basic mechanics of it, and sort of just how it reinforces the genre. Who the basic moves, in my case, I have a subset of those as well, the battle moves and the playbook moves, all sort of basic, you know, it's just the general uh, reinforcement of sort of the general things that go on in these stories. Battle was a subset I specifically chose because it's, I mean, shown. I call it shown in battle, very important. And the playbook moves to reinforce the internal arc of each archetype. Okay. Now, I'd like to, I'd like to ask a couple other questions about okay. Far Horizons as well. You're a 
co-op as I understand it. So it's not just a solo thing. It's not a top-down company. Could you explain that a little bit and how that might work and what the difference would be from a traditional maybe game company? Yes. Uh, and I can actually explain uh, quite a bit. So a traditional game company, if I was going to work on this, because this is something I've explored for some of my other projects, I would likely have to some enter into kind of a contract with them because I'm a game I've designed games. I actually have a few other games in the works. So if I came with a pre-made game, which is what I did to them, the friendship effort had already existed. I had worked with them before though. You would have to go there, work out some sort of contract with them. You would basically be selling the game to them to some degree. Usually it's like a license, you know, it depends on the agreement. Like I, I won't name names, but I had been in talks with some other people, some other properties. So sometimes you don't you have to give away the copyright. Sometimes you don't, depends on the company. And then you'd be usually working with somebody in the company sort of oversees sort of the allocation of all the resources. That's would be how a traditional company would work. Yes. Uh, with the cooperative, there are some elements that are similar, but some elements are different. With the traditional company, it's almost certainly a decision of um, some manager making that call on their own, if they're going to do it or not. Maybe a representative of that manager, depending on how big the company is. The cooperative, instead, I'd already been a member of the cooperative as I had submitted some games to their weekly magazine. So I made a vote. I had joined, and anyone could really join the cooperative and start this process. And I set it up as a major proposal that I wanted to allocate sort of the work for this. And it was voted on by everyone. Well, everyone who cared to vote on it, obviously. <laughs> I don't think every single person voted. Yeah. And when with majority rule and that began the process at that point no one assigned workers because by comparison at a traditional company there'd likely be some either contractors who were contracted or if it's a very big company someone on sort of on staff would likely be contracted to work with you on your project whereas the co-op what happens instead is that i work out usually it's in the proposal so i was actually working with uh I'm sure I can say their name, Marks, uh, at the co-op to work out sort of what proposal would be the most fair, since it was my first time ever doing it, on how much work equals a share of the product for a profit-sharing agreement in the end. Okay. And that's in the main proposal. And then that's put up sort of almost like an ad. Anyone can now come in. They know sort of like how many shares you get for the amount of work contributed to the project. Those shares are then tabulated at the very end of the project to determine how much of the profit is sort of split. And none of it usually, in my, with Friendship for Victory, the horizon, Far Horizon has chosen not to take any of it. And I think that's common. I have only led one project, but I'm pretty sure they don't take any of it, unlike a traditional company, which would absolutely take a cut of it. Yes, they take a, a lot of the profit at the top when everybody at the bottom doing the work got a lot less than the big Hasbro or someone would get. <laughs> yes, and... Whereas, in matter of fact, I put the tabulation in the book itself, uh, mainly so that it's sort of enshrined there what the original agreement was. So if you pick it up, you'll actually be able to see the tabulations. But instead, you know, it says how, many work, how much work we did and how much we agreed to it. And that then equals shares. The shares were added up and broken out into percentages. And then there's a breakdown of the percentages. So then every copy sold after, you know, unfortunately, there's going to be cost somewhere, you know, um, Yes. I can say that, you know, one bookshelf takes a fee for the shelves because I've sold my own personal books in the past. Uh, I think I'm sure it, I've never done through itch, but I'm sure they do the same. And I know Far Horizon sells for them. 
Um, you know, but after that, and we, we're planning eventually on doing physical books after the shortages are done, and you know, it makes sense to do that. You know, but after those costs, the profit that's left over will then be split out based on the pre-agreed percentages. And all the profits go to the people who actually worked on the project. See, I'm a big fan of that. That's something that I think that we need to see a lot more of. And I, I appreciate that. And I like that. It's definitely, definitely the kind of thing I'd like to be supporting. How has that worked out so far? How have you, have you, uh, how have you felt in that process as opposed to, you know, the other way that we traditionally see things where the person who's doing all the work doesn't get a whole heck of a lot of it. <laughs> Someone else gets it all that didn't do any of it. <laughs> Well, I feel pretty good with it. Um, it's nice in that it's very relaxed too. So there is some level of, so usually whoever makes the proposal becomes the project head. So there is some level of responsibility in that sense where there is one person who sort of oversees the project. So I was project head. And so that means I did have to, you know, when people signed on sort of help assign work and things like that. But it was nice in the sense that there was a much more of a cooperative feeling on it. Everyone who was there chose that job to be there. Yes. Everyone eventually was pretty passionate on the project at different points. Uh, you know, when they were doing their parts, especially the artists was very passionate about the work. And it was just very nice sort of experience, uh, just sort of breaking everything apart there, working together on this, knowing that it wasn't, I guess the best way of putting it is I've worked now, you know, I've worked for employers my entire life, you know, even outside of this, you know, yes. like in my main job. And there's a big difference between when you're assigned a, a job from your company and you personally don't care for it, but your boss told you you had to do it. And so you do it and it's a nine to five thing. And versus when you talk to someone who was interested in the project, really liked what they were doing. And, you know, they know that they're going to get like there's no absorption of excess labor. Yes. Whatever we agreed upon, you know, it's being split out. So people don't have that weird feeling of, you know, um, boss makes a dollar, I make a dime. That's what, feeling. <laughs> yeah. I like the little meme with Elmo on the, on the, on the, what is it? The, 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 the potty when they do that one, the, the boss <laughs> makes a dollar, I make a dime. That's why I poop on company time. <laughs> exactly. You know, there's none of, <laughs> you know, I know one feels rushed. You know, this project, we, we took their time. I actually, so as project head, you know, I very intentionally let everyone sort of work at their own pace. And sure, that means this project probably took longer than normal, but I didn't want to rush anyone, force people to work uncomfortable hours, especially since due to some, I guess I can mention this part, due to some extraneous issues, you know, one artist had to take on the work that was originally allocated to multiple artists their choice, by the way, to do so. I was actually eventually just going to cut back the art budget for the work. The nice thing though is they knew that by taking on those extra projects, they're going to get more of a share of it. Yes. And in comparison to my own personal job, like the one I work for nine to five to actually pay a lot of my bills where I've had to take on a lot of personal work because of COVID leaving to like people leaving my job and I'm not getting paid any extra. For that, so. Yeah, that, that's a raw deal there. That's how I have. It's much better this way. I think that, yeah. The cooperative has definitely found something that works a little bit better for at least the people doing the work. <laughs> you know, it's closer to what, yeah, I, the, the feeling is closer to what, like, sometimes an over-idealistic view of how work is, where if you work harder, you actually do get rewarded instead of your boss just taking it all for themselves, you know, if, to be blunt about it. Yeah. You know, 
And that I think leads to a better working environment. Oh, no doubt. Well, we're coming up about on time. I want to ask you something before we, mm. we end this. Can you tell our listeners where they can find Far Horizons and your work online? Oh, yes. I, w- I should have had the links ready, but they are in drive through RPG. So you can find them there if you search for Far Horizons. If you send me those, I will make sure they end up in the show notes. And listeners, you can check those show notes out for the link. So drive through RPG the first one that you mentioned where else was there <laughs> well there's they're also on itch.io and on twitter but there is one little caveat i should mention the company has gone through a name change in the last year you know for branding reasons there's a reason for the change and as a result it might make it a little hard to search for them sometimes so i will say they used to be known as the san Gennaro cooperative so just in case you have issues but regardless you should be able to find them as far horizons on twitter I believe it's actually still at San Gennaro on Twitter. You should be able to find them on itch and you should be able to find them on drive through RPG. And we will have the links for those in the show notes. As always, where you can find us on Facebook, just search Wobblies and Wizards. We're pretty active there. You can find us at wobbliesandwizards.com. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please share with your friends, tell us others about us and leave us a positive review wherever you're listening. I'm on Twitter at Logar Crom, and keep those dice rolling. This is Logar and I'm just going to do a quick plug here for our, our little podcast. We put a lot of time and effort into this and money out of our own pockets. So if you appreciate having a daily podcast about role playing games with our specific bend, Please go over to Patreon backslash Wobblies and Wizards, that's W-O-B-B-L-I-E-S-A-N-D-W-I-Z-A-R-D-S, and give us a little support.